All right, well, we start a brand new series today on the book of Ruth. And as we said in the uh, introduction, we're really not even going to start with the book of Ruth because the book of Ruth really isn't even about Ruth herself specifically as far as being the main character. Now, in Scripture, every main character is Jesus Christ in every story throughout all of the Bible. But then there are these secondary characters as well. And the story of Ruth or the book of Ruth really isn't primarily about or from the perspective of Ruth. It's from her mother-in-law, Naomi. And we're not even going to start in the book of Ruth this morning. We're going to end there, but we'll start in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of history. For those of you that don't like history, just hang out for about 10 minutes, okay? But there's something called context, and, and context really matters. You learned about it in school, and it bored you then. It probably is going to bore you now. But context matters, where you are, the setting, the scenery, uh, the time of day or, or season or history, the people that are involved in this story or in this situation matters because anything pulled out of context can be construed to mean anything that you and I want for it to mean. We see that all the time in life, especially in politics and, and just in our everyday life. And so context really matters. And so this story or this biblical historical idea really starts from the perspective of a one, woman named Naomi. She was Ruth's mother-in-law, as we said, and everything's going to center around her perspective, through her family, through her own life, and we're going to see her in different seasons of her life. We're going to see her in these times of difficulty, in these moments of, of pain and suffering and loss and hardship, and we're going to see her, even though she's in those places, surrounded by family, even though she doesn't feel like she has family left. And we're going to see all throughout her story, and through the story of Naomi, or through the story of Ruth, we're going to see God's sovereign hand in control of all things, even though most of the time Naomi herself never sees God's hand move. She never sees him working on her, in her behalf. She never sees him working in history, never sees him working in, in her people. The whole time her perspective is shifted on me. Why me? What have I lost? What's going on with me? Why don't I have what everybody around me has or what I had hoped for, what I dreamed for, or what I planned to have? And so we're going to see her in those moments of difficulty and pain and hardship. And we're going to see her completely miss the move and the hand of God, even though he is working specifically in and through her people, through her life, and through her family. Well, the author of Ruth really isn't unknown. It's been debated for years. Jewish uh, history says the prophet Samuel wrote it. Some people say that King David wrote it. But no matter who wrote the story of Ruth, they were a master storyteller. This has been called one of the greatest narratives in all of history and all of Scripture. It's a beautifully written story, masterfully written, that shows what God does in moving through our lives and, and our history and, and our people, even when we're not aware. And so it covers this period of time in the period of the judges. Now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about one of those judges. There were 12 in the history of the people of Israel. Samson was one of those who was the man who was strong because of his hair and who tore down a, a temple that fell on himself and killed him and his enemy at the end of his life. There were 12 of these judges, and a, a few of them at the very beginning started out to be somewhat people who followed after God, but progressively they became people who were just looking out for their own interests. And so this story of Naomi and the story of Ruth 
takes, time, takes place in the time and the history and the context of these judges and this difficulty that the people of God went through. The people of God went through these uh, periods of enslavery and God brought them out and put them into this land. So they're in this land that God had brought to them, given them this beautiful place to live. And he warned them, be careful that when you go into this land, you're going to be tempted to follow after the gods of other people. You're going to be tempted to follow after them and chase after the things that they have. But when you get there, do not, do not be tempted because I am the God who provides everything you will ever need. And so it covers this period of time for them. When they're in this place of judges and the people are in this cycle of disobedience. And it walks us all the way to right around the ascension of David to the throne of Israel. Now, if you don't know David, he was a man after God's own heart, but struggled mightily just like you and I in our everyday behavior and choices. But his heart loved and longed after God. And he was the king that they had hoped for. See, Israel started out as this tiny little family that became this tiny little people that became this tiny nation that eventually grew into a larger nation. And all throughout their history, they longed for, hoped for, and begged for a king because they looked around at the other nations. And they saw these other nations that were prosperous and thriving and growing. They had something different that they, the people of Israel, did not have. All these other peoples had a king that was established that would rule over them. And Israel longed for a king. And so God promised them that he would give them a king, but not in the way that they thought he would. But he brings them at some point King David, who was a king who would bring together the people of God and who would be a, a king who would foreshadow the greatest king, the ultimate king that Israel and the people of the world ever needed, who was Jesus Christ, who would come through this line, through this lineage, and through this heritage. And so what I want you to do right now, store this away, put this in the back of your mind. The ascension of David to the throne of Israel, who was the king they'd been hoping for, longing for, and waiting for. Because we'll see a glimpse of that at the very end of the book of Ruth. If you want to read ahead, go right ahead and do so. But put that in the back of your mind that what we're talking about today will lead to this coming of the King David. And it's so important and so significant. So what I want to do, though, is I want to start in, in the book of Judges chapter 2 because this is really where the setting is taking place. And this is the scene in which Naomi and Ruth find themselves in this difficult place. So God had brought them into the, the promised land and a man named Joshua is the one that led them there. But in Judges chapter 2 verse 8, this is what it says about Joshua. Joshua the son of Nun and the servant of the Lord died at age 110 years old. And so after him, there's an entire generation. All that generation also that were gathered with him also went to their fathers. So Joshua led the people with this group of men known as leaders or elders or tribe leaders, whatever you want to call them. And there arose after them another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, we don't know if this is Joshua's fault, the leader's fault, or the next generation's fault. All we know is that somebody didn't either pass along this understanding of who God was and that he was anything and everything you would ever need in life, and then all the history that he had done and the works of the people. Or the next generation said, we don't need this God. We've never known him or needed to rely on him. So we're going to chase after the other gods that are in this promised land. And so they grew up and did not know the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. The Baals were the, the gods of the other peoples, the enemies in the promised land. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Because that's what plunderers do. They plunder, right? That makes sense. Plunderers plunder. That's what they do, morning, noon, and night. And so these people who at one time followed after God, very strongly chased after him, they'd been given this beautiful land, everything that he had promised for hundreds of years before. 
This God proved himself to be true, that he was faithful, that he was right, that he was good, that anything you ever needed, he would provide because he'd done it in their history for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. But then Joshua walks away, and this next generation comes up, and they were given everything. They didn't have to fight for anything or struggle for anything or rely upon God for anything. And so this next generation comes along, and they say, we don't want to follow you. We don't like your rules or your statutes or your laws. We don't want to do anything that you tell us to. And so there's people who once founded their identity on Yahweh, the one true God that was the God of all the gods, now found themselves worshiping all the other gods that were available because they wanted to add to their life. They wanted to look like the other people. They wanted to chase after the success of the people that were in the land. They wanted to dress like them, have houses like them, have crops and flocks like them. And so they chased after them. And so the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he, he was ticked, basically. That's what we would say. He was ticked off. God was mad at these people. And we say, well, why would God be so mad? Because they, you know, they still loved him, but maybe they loved other gods. God is a jealous God. God is the God who says, you are with me because I am with you and we don't have a relationship with anybody else because there's nobody else that can fulfill you or satisfy you, who's given to you, who's sacrificed for you, and who will be faithful to you for the rest of time. And so God's anger burned against these people because they were relying on these other gods, the God of their enemies, and they had this self-reliance that we don't need you, we'll take care of it. And so not only did God remove his hand, his hand of provision, his hand of protection from the people, and sometimes that happens. God says, look, if you want what you want long enough and you don't want me, I'll just remove my hand. I'll say, okay, you go ahead. You go what you think. Go after what you think you want. But instead of just removing his hand, the hand of this God who removed them out of slavery and difficulty was not just pulled back, but it was pressed down upon them. That God said, whatever you try to do, I'm going to fight against you. You were on my side. I was with you. I was your God. I was your father. I was your king. I was everything you ever needed. And now I'm going to stand opposite of you because you were standing opposite of me. And I will fight against you. And the people could not figure out. Every time they went out to fight one of the enemies, why they were plundered. Because plunder is plunder. And God's on their side, so they got no chance. I think sometimes we find ourselves in that same situation. We rely on our own sufficiency, our own self-reliance, or we chase after the things of everybody else, and we wonder why we're not getting anywhere. We wonder why we fail at every turn. We wonder why our lives aren't fulfilled and satisfied, and it might be because we need to take a look and realize that, we have, that God hasn't left us necessarily, but we left him, and we're standing on opposite sides of him. And standing against him, we can never overcome him. And so these people are in this difficult situation. They're in this place that everything they tried to do at every turn, God was standing against them. We say, why would God be against his people? Because his people were running away from him and God will do or allow anything that he can to get his people back in relationship with him. And so God, even in his righteous anger, which means he was justified, he was fully justified to be angry with his people because he had done everything to rescue them and to receive them into relationship with him. But he didn't ultimately leave him. Look in chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. That's great because they don't want to be plundered anymore. So God sends these judges, even though they turn out to be evil, because they mirrored the people. Sometimes that happens with a people of God or a people of the world. That sometimes we're given a leader that just mirrors who we already are. 
Because we want our lives to continue to be like they are. We don't want any change. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We don't want to get out of our comfort zone. We want to continue in the life we've already planned for ourselves. And so God gives them these judges that removes a little bit of their pain, a little bit of their difficulty, and a little bit of their suffering. But they did not listen to these judges. For they hoard after other gods and they bow down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And so God, even in his anger, God, even in his frustration, righteous frustration, like he was perfectly right to be angry with his people. Even though his people walked away from him, God never walked away from his people. Because his covenant, once he makes a covenant, he cannot break it. It's stronger than a promise. It's greater than a wish. God says, look, no matter what you do, I am still going to love you. I'm still going to chase after you. I might chastise you. I might discipline you. I might break a leg every now and then. I might punch you in the gut. But it's for your good because I want to bring you back in relationship with me. Because if you walk away from me, it's not just a broken leg. It's not just a broken arm. It's death and your life will be ruined. And so sometimes God causes and sometimes God allows things in our life. To bring us back into relationship with him because his covenant with his people is stronger than the disobedience of his people. God's covenant is so strong because he is so faithful and righteous and good and holy and kind. That he would send judges to these people to say, look, this isn't the plan because these judges are just military, political assignments. They're not really out looking for your spiritual good, which is the most important thing in your life. But I'm going to at least give you a little bit of reprieve so that you're not just plundered over and over again, left decimated with nothing. I I want you to get to the point, though, where you're emptied of yourself until you have nothing left to turn but to me. And so God gives them this gift and this grace, and yet the people still continue to walk away from him. Verse 20 tells us this, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel yet again because this people has transgressed or literally walked over my covenant. God says, look, I'm not leaving you. And they're like, great, don't leave me so I can do anything I want. And I can just come back to you and rub you like a genie and you'll give me anything that I want or anything that I ask for. And so they walk all over this covenant, this commitment that God has made that I commanded their fathers and have, they have not obeyed my voice. And so he tells them this, I'll no longer drive out your enemies. I'll no longer push them away, the ones that Joshua left when he died. And I will do this in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. How many times have you and I said, why me? Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to suffer in this way? Why do I have to struggle when everybody else has a king? Every other nation is prosperous. Every other people has anything you could ever want or hope for. And look, here I am over here suffering. Why do I have to do this? This is where context matters. God didn't necessarily do this to the people. They did it to themselves. God just said, if that's what you want, I'll let you have what you want. But ultimately, because my covenant with you will not let you go, I will allow or bring things into your life that will cause you to come to the end of yourself so that you have nothing left but to look up to me and say, God, I walked away and I messed up and I have no other choice but to come back to you. Sometimes God does these things, as he said, to test us. Sometimes we have illness and difficulty and disease and loss and pain and suffering. Sometimes not necessarily because of our sin and disobedience, 
But sometimes God wants to test our faith. God wants to see whether we'll walk in his ways, we'll trust in him. And you and I find ourselves in those situations sometimes often, sometimes yearly, sometimes every five to ten years. We go through this season where everything seems to be going well, and all of a sudden, everything turns upside down. And our first question is, God, why me? God, why do I have to suffer? We have to go back and look at our context first and see, did we walk faithfully with God or are we walking in our own steps? Did we stay committed to him or are we chasing after other things? Because if we're chasing after other things, God will by all means do whatever it takes to draw us back to himself. But sometimes there are just seasons and moments where God wants to test us, to strengthen us, to strengthen our resolve and our faith and our commitment to him. Not to push us away or to drive us away, but to strengthen that faith so that we're ready for anything that might come our way. And the Israelites found themselves in this situation over and over and over again. Most of the time, not because of situational testing, most of the time because of their direct sin and disobedience and walking away in rebellion against God. And it wasn't just for a moment, it wasn't just for a couple of years, it was for an entire season or history of their lives. It tells us in Judges chapter 21, at the very end of the Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. That king that they wanted for and hoped for, like they wanted to be like every other nation. And so because God didn't give them a king, they said, fine, we'll do whatever we want to do. Whatever is right in our own eyes, that's what we'll do. Man, doesn't that sound very eerily similar to our context today? And our language today. Hey, you do you, I'll do me. Because I don't have a king that's over me. I'm not going to submit to any ruler. I'm not going to submit to any God. You just do whatever you want and I'll do what I want and everything will be fine. Well, unfortunately, everything didn't turn out fine for the people of Israel in this season of life because they were in this season of difficulty and cycle of disobedience all throughout this time of the judges. Which led, leads us up to the setting and the scene and the time in history in which Naomi and Ruth's story is told in the beginning of Ruth chapter 1. Now watch this. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now if we just started with those words in that verse, we would say, why would God allow famine in the land? Why would God be so cruel to his people? Why would he allow the rain to stop so that their crops would die? Without context, we would think God was not so good to his people. But in context, we understand God pulled back the rain because his people had walked away from him. Right? You with me? Does that make sense? We understand a little bit of the history and why context matters. Okay, so we continue in this verse. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the name of the two sons were Malan and Chilion. He was like chilling all the time. Great name, right? <laughs> they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. So Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, were from this town and from this uh, tribe and this place of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, again, th there's significance, there's imagery here. You have to understand the context of what this means, the meaning of this word. Bethlehem, this small little place, the, the meaning of this place was house of bread. Now, this is a place where bread was always often readily available. But what we just read was, the irony is, there was a famine in the land, so there was no bread. So in the house of bread, there is no bread. 
So Bethlehem is not living up to its name. And the reason Bethlehem is not living up to its name is because its people are not faithfully following after God. But there's beauty here. Because even though this place is known as the house of bread, and the irony is there is no bread, there would one day in Bethlehem be filled with bread. Because Jesus, who was of the tribe of Judah, was born in the town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, and would call himself in John chapter 6, verse 35, the bread of life. Wherever Jesus is, there's plenty of sustenance. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of fulfillment. But whenever there is no God, there is no submission to him, there is no Jesus, there is no bread. There's nothing to fulfill. There's nothing to satisfy. And so because the people had walked away from God, this place that was known as the house of bread had no bread. And so Elimelech takes his family and says, we're walking away from God. When difficult times come with me, I don't know that I can trust in him. So I'm going to walk away. And I'm not just going to walk away. I'm going to go to Moab, who's one of the enemies that we were supposed to rid the promised land of. We're going to go and we're going to hang out with them because God has not proven himself faithful in my current situation. I don't know if he's going to show up or he's going to come through or he's going to provide. So I'm going to step out on God and I'm going to walk away and not just walk away. I'm going to go to his enemy and I'm going to dwell among these people and I'm going to live with them and I'm going to hang out and spend some time with them. And so Elimelech takes his family and he removes them out of the place where there was no bread, there was no king and there was seemingly no hope. And he takes them to the place of Moab. In verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And so back in that time, the husband was the financial provider, somewhat today, but very much so in that day. And so now they've walked away from their community. They've walked away from their land. They've walked away from their God. And now she finds herself in this place of her enemies with no husband and left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other was Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. So they weren't there for a few days or a few weeks. They were there for a full decade. And both Malin and Chilion died so that the, women were, the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. And so here's Naomi, walks away from the people of God and from her community, from this land that God had promised for so long. And Elimelech thought he was going to find something better somewhere else. And he takes his family and moves into the enemies of God for a decade. And so Naomi finds herself experiencing this tragic loss and she loses her husband. And not only does she lose her husband, she loses her two sons. And in that day and time, she at this point has little to no financial support. And with no financial support, this woman is left to the mercy of the community around her. But this woman has no community. Because she has spiritually and physically walked away from her God, from her land, from her people, and from the community that God had provided for her. And isn't that probably one of the saddest things about you and I? When we need community the most, it's the time we want it the least. Instead of staying and fighting when things are hard, we run and we take off. And see, the idea here for Elimelech 
I was like, I, we're just going to go for a little while. You know, we're, I, I know God's in this place at some point. Maybe eventually he'll come back or he'll bring his hand back and he'll restore everything and the famine will go away and rains will come and crops will come. But I'm just not going to be faithful for, for a little while. We're, we're going to leave and we're going to go to Moab and the enemies and we're not going to be there for long. We're just going to stay long enough so that we can get what we need and get what we want and then we'll come back. The problem is none of us plan to stay there for long, right? We're all only just going to be there a little while. I'm only going to do this for a little bit. I'm only going to walk away from God for a season because he's not showing up in my moment. He's not delivering in my circumstance. And so I'm not going to leave for long. I'm just going to go for a little bit. But the language here, if you could see the original language, there's a progression in these verses in the language that's used. It's not just a step to the side, get what I want, and step back. It's a literal progression. I'm just going to take a step over here, and then after a little while, I, you know, I'll get a little bit comfortable. And I'm going to take another step over here, and then I'm going to buy a house in this place, and then I'm going to start to grow crops, and then all of a sudden, not just grow crops, but you know, we, we're in this, immersed in this culture of all these other gods where anything goes, anybody does whatever they want. And so I'll just let my sons marry women of the enemy and other gods. And so Naomi stood idly by, maybe even cheered her sons on. You go, you get you, get you some wives because you need to have wives. You're, you're men who need to have that desire fulfilled. You need to start a family. And sons, you go get these wives. And the language is this progression of not just taking a step over and coming back and staying for a little while. It's a step deeper and deeper and deeper and further and further and further away from God. And being immersed in this culture to the point where you don't even realize. Naomi may not even realize what she was doing, allowing her sons to marry these women from Moab, the enemy of God who served other gods that would eventually change her son's perspective and worldview on spirituality and understanding of Yahweh God himself. It's hard for me not to get on a, a separate box here. I just want, just want to ask a question. In the way, and I've asked it before, I've said it before, in the way you and I relate in our everyday life, the things that we think about, the things that we chase after, the things that we desire, the things that we want for our kids, my question is, is that worldview or perspective set on the things of God? Or maybe we've stepped over a little while and progressed a little further and a little further and a little further? So that decision is not based on a biblical worldview, but is based on our kids or our family wanting or needing to be happy based on what everybody else is doing in life. That, I'm not going to get too much deeper in that. You can answer that question for yourself. And so Naomi, at some point, hears that God has returned back to his people because, remember, God makes a covenant with his people. He never breaks it. And so God has returned back to his people and he brings his grace and his kindness once again. And she hears that the rains have begun to return back in Bethlehem and the famine has been lifted because God's kindness is good even when we're not. He's always faithful even when we're not. He's always faithful even if we have walked away from him. And so she hears this. And when she hears this, she has to remember this one verse. 
She has to because she'd been brought up being taught about who God is, his faithfulness, his sovereign hand, his control in all of their lives. And when she hears that rain has returned and famine has been removed, she has to remember Leviticus chapter 26. She has to remember God saying this, if you walk in my statutes, if you walk with me and remain faithful to me and you observe my commandments and do them, not just hear them but do them, then I will give you, look at this specifically, I will give you rains in their season, and your land shall yield its increase, and Bethlehem will be a house of bread once again, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Immediately, Naomi had to have remembered that because she had been taught that. She had heard the stories of what God had done. She had known all of those things. Immediately, that has to come to mind for her. That God said, if you'll just walk with me, I'm not going to promise you'll get everything you want. But I promise I'm going to take care of everything you need. And you will have rain in its season so that your, your crops will grow, so that you'll have food to provide for your family. And as soon as this happened, Naomi began the journey home. She started to return home. And for you and I, that's a great picture of repentance. There's a season, a moment in our life where we're walking away from God or we're stepping out into the ways of the world and immediately God brings something to mind or brings a person into our view or the Holy Spirit convicts us and we have this moment to say, I've walked away from you, God, but I remember you're faithful. I remember your covenant relationship with your people and I want to return back to you. And so in this chapter, in the opening chapter, the word return is used 12 times times in these verses in chapter one and it carries this sense this idea that we can turn back that we can go back and we can return home no matter how far we have gone no matter what we've done no matter where we have come from even in those darkest moments God has a way of drawing us back and this is picture of repentance is this picture of returning and coming back to him that God can restore any life that is broken, any life that is messed up, any land that is, that is filled with drought and famine and not producing anything that has no water or no rain or no hope, that God can bring sustenance, he can bring rain, he can bring fruit back into that life and back into that land and return it to its original purpose to become again the house of bread that Bethlehem was meant to be. And God can do the very same thing in your life, he can do the same thing in any life that is possible and living in this world. That when you and I come to this point in this place where we see and we remember or God brings into our view that we have stepped out and we have walked away from him 12 times in this chapter, he says, you can return home. You can come back. You can come back to me because I have made a way for you to say I messed up and I need to come back to you. And so God begins this process of restoration in Naomi's life, verse 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, she said to them, go, return. Each of you go back to your home. Go back to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, with your husbands and with me. And may the Lord grant you that you would find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And so they have this, this back and forth between them. And Naomi says, go back to your house. Go back to your home. You're not from Bethlehem. You're not from the tribe of Judah. You're not from the people of Israel. You're from Moab. Just go back home to mom and dad. So they have this back and forth exchange. And the girls just cry and they weep. And they say, Naomi, please don't send us away. We're with you. We're your daughters-in-law. We want to go with you. And back and forth, back and forth they go. And Naomi says, look, girls, it'll be better for you if you just go back home. And so then Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, which is a sign, a symbol to say, okay, I'm releasing myself from you. 
But Ruth said, I'm not leaving. You've been so good to me. You've been so kind to me. I'm not leaving you. In verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said this, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return to your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to return. Do not send me back from following you. And watch this language here. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God, and when you die, I will die, and then I will be buried there. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. You recognize those last words because we say it in almost every wedding ceremony that we have. Until death do us part. And so Ruth, this Moabite woman who did not know anything about Yahweh God, makes this incredible declaration of faith to her mother-in-law and says, I'm not leaving you. Till death do us part, I'm with you. I'm going to be faithful to you. Not only that, she makes this declaration of faith to God himself. That I see something, even though it's an ounce I see something in you and this desire to go back home because you know that this God who's always been faithful to your people has shown himself to be faithful again. And I see that glimmer of hope in you that I've never seen anywhere else. And so I'm holding to you and I'm clinging to you and your God will be my God. And this is a beautiful foreshadow, a foreshadow of the coming of Jesus Christ that anybody, no matter where they grew up from, that anyone who would confess this same commitment to Christ could be saved and brought into the family of God as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what God does to bring salvation to anyone who would believe. So in verse 19 and 21 through 21, it says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem back home, the whole town was stirred up because of them. Now remember, it's been 10 years since she's been away. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Now hold on just a second. Like they knew it was Naomi. But You've seen those friends you haven't seen in a long time, and you haven't seen them for five years, but they look like they've aged for 20, right? They've had a hard life. It's been difficult. And so this is the idea when the people walk up and the women walk up, they're like, is that Naomi? Because she don't look like Naomi. (laughs) She left at 50, and she came back looking like she's 80. And she says this, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And remember this perspective. Naomi is blaming God for all of her troubles. Even though it was Naomi and her husband who walked away from God to begin with. She says, don't call me that because God's been bitter toward me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Lord Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi says, look, I left completely full. But because of the circumstances of life, I'm coming back empty. Everything that I thought I wanted, everything that I'd hoped for is all gone. I left happy and content because I knew I was going to a place that I thought would satisfy me and fulfill me. I had a husband and I had two sons who ultimately married two wives and I had everything I thought I wanted and needed. But don't call me Naomi anymore because I'm not full. I'm empty. I'm discouraged. Because the things of life have happened to me. That I went away pleasant. But because all of these circumstances in life, I have grown bitter. Because of things that have happened to me. Because of things that didn't happen for me. 
And I think you and I find ourselves in a very similar place where our perspective has changed in life. Where we set out with full of hope and promise. We're going to have this beautiful life and everything's going to work out. And we're going to have these great jobs and this great house and these two kids and a picket fence and a dog and an American dream. And everything's going to work out for us. And then we wake up and life just happens because that's what life always does. And instead of continuing to be filled with hope and promise, feeling like life is full, we feel like our life is empty. We have nothing. And because life just happens, we grow bitter about life. And because we grow bitter about life, we grow bitter toward God because he didn't come through like we hoped or thought he would or thought he should. But it could be that God allowed Naomi to be emptied because she needed to be emptied of everything else. So that she could realize the only way she could be filled is through him. Maybe God needed everything in her life to go away. Because she put her hope in this or put her hope in that or put her hope in these other things. And God says they'll never fulfill, they'll never satisfy. And maybe that happens to you and I. Maybe you find yourself in that place because of disobedience or because of sin. Or maybe it's just because of what God said to the people in Judges. Maybe he allows these seasons or these difficulties or these things in life in order to test you by them. Whether you will take care to walk in the way of the Lord. And maybe you're in one of those seasons. Maybe you're in that place where you're questioning God's goodness. Maybe you felt full five years ago. But today you feel empty because of brokenness. Or because of relational strife or financial difficulty or illness or pain or suffering. Maybe you just feel completely empty. And maybe that happens because you walked away from God. But maybe it happens because God wants to empty you from everything else so that you'll understand he's the only thing that can fulfill and satisfy you. And so verse 22 continues. It says, Naomi returned and Ruth and Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now watch this. Leave that verse for me for a second. Naomi came back and said, look, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I, I, I was pleasant, I was full, I was satisfied, and I have come back bitter and broken and empty. And God did this to me. God's hand was moving in her life even when she couldn't see it. It says it here. Naomi was able to return. She walked away from God, but he said, it's okay. Because my covenant with you is stronger than your disobedience toward me. You can come back home. And not only did it get to come back home, you come back with this daughter-in-law that spoke things to you that the people of the world will speak to one another for the rest of time. What a beautiful gift and blessing of this daughter who did not know God, but spoke in covenant words and ways that represented God more than the woman who grew up in Israel herself. And not only that, look when she returned to the house of bread at the beginning of when bread returned to his people. She didn't come back empty-handed. She came back with hope, with promise. With God saying, I've been working in your life this whole time, even if you could not see. And God does that with you and I all the time. I can't wait to get to the rest of the story. But maybe today, maybe you're in that season where you've been blaming God 
And maybe you know you've walked away from him. And you just need to come back to him and say, God, I have walked away from you. I realize I walked away from everything that would ever fulfill me or satisfy me. And I've been bitter because I felt like I'm empty because all of life didn't turn out the way I wanted to. And I've been blaming you for my circumstances. And maybe you come to the place where you're empty this morning. And you're empty because God wants you to get to that place, the end of yourself, the end of your self-reliance, so that you would turn back to him and realize that he's the only thing, the only one who will ever fulfill you and satisfy you in ways that your life so desperately needs. And the great thing is, just like Ruth, no matter where you've been, no matter what other God you've served, and just like Naomi, no matter how far you've walked away from him, God says today you can return home and be received and be in relationship with me. Maybe for some of you it's the very first time, say I've never heard of this God before, or I've never believed or trusted in him in this way. And maybe for some of you, you've walked away from him and say, I need to return back to that relationship that he called me to in the very beginning. We'd love nothing more than to have a chance to pray with you, to sing with you, to talk with you. I'll be at the front at the end as we sing. If you just have questions or want to pray, or if you just want to come down to the front and pray along the front and say, God, I need you back in my life. We'd love you to take that opportunity this morning. Let's pray. Father, we all find ourselves... In those seasons where we question you, we doubt you, and, and sometimes if we'll stop and realize that those things happen because we, we chased after other things and we walked away from you to begin with. And Father, the greatest thing in our life that would ever be is to know that our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion has been crushed because our Savior, our King Jesus, allowed his life to be crushed so that that sin could be removed from our lives, so that we could return home back with you. So God, I pray for men and women this morning that maybe for the very first time say, God, I, I don't know what it looks like, but, but my heart, my mind, what I would maybe know is the Holy Spirit is calling me like he was calling Ruth to say, your God will be my God. I don't know all about him, I don't know all that he's ever done or all that he'll ever do, but I know there's something special about him. And maybe like Naomi, some of us who've known the works in the hand of God for ages, we just found ourselves slip away in chasing after other things. And God, we've grown bitter toward you. We've been angry at how our life has turned out. But God, help us to see beyond our circumstance that your hand is moving and working for our good and for your glory, even when we cannot see your move and your hand. So Father, in those moments, help us to confess our anger and our bitterness toward you and help us to learn to trust you even when we don't understand. Father, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for never breaking your covenant, your promise with your people. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us in ways that we are still learning to understand. It's in the power and the name of Jesus.